welcome all to uh, this uh, special event. Um, it's a great um, privilege to co-sponsor the Majeski Lecture with the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. Uh, and we are equally privileged uh, to have uh, delivering this lecture Professor Tony Stewart, who all of you I'm sure know, who is the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Chair in Humanities and Professor and Chair at the Department of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University. You will also, I'm sure, know uh, his work. Uh, uh, a very distinguished scholar uh, on, among other things, uh, Bengali Vaishnavism, the uh, Chaitanya tradition in particular, and author of a number of important monographs and a great many articles as well. Uh, the more, most recent book being The Final Word, the Chaitanya Charitamrita and the Grammar of Religious Tradition. Uh, also before that, Fabulous Females and Peerless Peers, Tales of Mad Adventure in Old Bengal. Um, and with uh, um, Chase Twitchell, the lover and the lover of God, Rabindranath Tagore's, um, if I can pronounce it. Banushingam. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, you know, it, it's very interesting that, um, and I think entirely appropriate that one of the things uh, Tony is doing, as I take it in his recent work, is looking, and in this uh, talk in particular, is looking at the way in which um, Islam, in a way, is also part of the Vaishnav tradition. Um, and I think that is uh, a really important and salutary thing to do. And I myself have always thought that the um, conventional division between monotheistic religions on the one hand and non-monotheistic ones on the other. So Christianity, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam on the one hand has Abrahamic faiths and then everyone else on the other is an uh, unmerited um, distinction and that the vast majority of the world's Muslims have always lived with their neighbors uh, as Hindus and Buddhists rather than Christians and Jews and that in that sense, the majority of the world's Muslims have always been part of a non-Abrahamic uh, tradition. Um, and in a way, Tony's work uh, gives substance uh, to this new way of thinking about um, not only Islam, but world religions and comparatively religions in general, and not least, of course, his particular concern with Hinduism and Vaishnavism. So welcome, Tony. Thank you very much. Uh, because of the light in here, I'm going to have to switch to my reading glasses. My eyes have deteriorated somewhat in the last year or so. And so I'm going to be bending over. Hopefully that won't affect my delivery, and I won't be able to look up as much as I would like. Uh, but I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to deliver the Majewski Lecture, which is sponsored, as you know, as you just heard, in coordination between the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies and the Oriental Institute and hosted by St. Anthony's. Today's talk, though, is going to be somewhat of a departure from what the South Asia Seminar, which meets in this room every week, has sponsored last term in this, for we're going to look closely and attempt to contextualize and then perform a short exegetical exercise on a Bangla text of the mid-18th century, a text called the Iblis Nama by Garibula but which was published repeatedly in the 19th century. I realize that uh, actually reading and trying to make sense of a primary text is a bit of a novelty these days, 
So I hope you'll find the exercise amusing and fruitful. I am, however, an early modern specialist, <clears throat> working on 14th to 18th century uh, materials, so it's with some trepidation that I enter into the 19th century, and especially when Polly and Faisal are in the room. Uh, so <laughs> I, I had to put on my brave cap to do this. Um, I'm also a contrarian, and when I see near total unanimity in scholarship, in this case a uniform dismissal of the text of the Iblis Nama as an exercise in mediocrity, poor diction, and little more than lowbrow entertainment for the masses on a subject that was suspect, I become a little bit suspicious. And finally, this is where you play a role. I never present finished works, only works in progress. So your input can help me to shape the final version of this project, which is a spinoff of the monograph I am preparing on the fictional Sufi peers of Bengal, which looks precisely at those Vaishnava-Sufi uh, uh, interactions. And I look forward to your insights. Um, the approach that I'm going to take today, though, is primarily bringing to bear literary critical tools to uh, a religious text that has been, I think, misclassified, and we'll talk about that, um, but as a way of demonstrating that there's more than one way for us to approach this material uh, other than looking at whatever historical content we can squeeze out of it. As we go through the slides, also note that the transliterations are from the Bangla text. Technical vocabulary is not turned back into Persian or Arabic forms because we need to recognize that Islam in Bengal may not be the same as it is in those other parts of the world. <clears throat> so, in 1287, of uh, the Bengali era, which is uh, 1879 or 80, a short Bangla work was published in Calcutta under the title of the Iblis Namar Punti <clears throat> by an author who goes by the shortened name Gorib, probably Gordibula. Uh, or Gordibala, who lives somewhere between 1670 and 1770. This somewhat unusual text is a colloquy between the Prophet Muhammad and the fallen Iblis, with the occasional synonym uh, of Shaitan, and three times in the text uh, by the epithet Ajajil or Azazil, uh, the scapegoat, when referring to Iblis's own sin of refusing to bow before Adam. The bulk of the text is an interrogation of Iblis regarding the nature of his followers. It is a treatise on bad behavior from a very particular Islamic perspective. The characterizations uniformly consist of those who have violated propriety more than any other shortcomings. The text is prefaced in its opening verses with a somewhat uneasy statement about the nature of the book and the reason it was composed in the vernacular Bangla a move that immediately draws attention to the language of the text itself and its intended audience. The Bangla, however, is not high literary shadubasha that was epitomized by the likes of Bunkim and other literati writing at the same time the text was published. It is generally straightforward syntax, use of postpositions, verb forms, and prosody, both tripodi and poyar meters. The language was consistent with prevailing expressions of Cholid or Choltivasha, uh, that is, common speech, of the 18th and 19th centuries, the colloquial vernacular in the lower register. But this language was a Bangla apart, 
whose most distinctive feature was a deliberate incorporation of Persian, Urdu, and some Arabic terms that were in effect largely transliterated into Bangla. The enduring idiom of uh, Mushulmani, this is the Bangla pronunciation, Mushulmani Bangla, uh, started centuries earlier, but probably crystallized into its specific accelerated form uh, called Dhobhashi, double language, by our author Garibula in the 18th century. Dobashi was sufficiently widespread in print that it was recognized officially in the reports of the colonial government by the 1850s, but would essentially disappear as a distinct language in the first half of the 20th century. But its use was contested for different reasons by different factions. Dobashi would subsequently be employed by some Salafian Farisi reformers in an effort to impose a literal replica of their vision of Islam that could only be mediated through Arabic and Persian, and which must rid itself of all alien accretions, as defined by their fundamentalist understanding of the pristine practices sanctioned by Muhammad. Here is where the politics of language becomes critical. For nearly all reformers, any practice or belief understood to have local Bangla origins had to be expunged, and for many that included the language itself. In that world, ultra-conservatives deem the Bangla language to be an unacceptable medium in its unaltered form. For them, it was not considered an Islamic language, the affiliation of languages with religious communities being a novel development in the latter decades of the 19th century. But the language issue would ultimately loom large, as we now know, with the language movement and ultimately the, the creation of Bangladesh. The resort to Dobashi was already a concession to the enormity of the task they saw before them, but the impulse suggested they wished to wean Bengali Muslims away from Bangla by introducing increasingly large numbers of lexical elements from Persian and Arabic that would eventually reshape their conceptual world in a way that would lead Muslims to embrace Hindustani or even Persian or Arabic as their first language, and the highest level of text that I've indexed so far has almost 40% of these uh, so-called foreign words. By this act, certain Malvis sought to make the population more thoroughly Muslim, which as Bangla-only speakers, they apparently were not deemed to be, to divorce them linguistically from their own cultural heritage in favor of a religious orientation. For the reformers, Dobashi was the first step in this process, meant to de-Indianize or de-Hinduize the Muslim population. In that same political climate, there were other activists among the classes, the Ashraf, who were not so fundamentally zealous in religious terms, but who were more comfortable with Hindustani and Persian, and likewise felt the need to educate the illiterate, usually referred to in their literatures as the masses, who constituted the overwhelming majority of nominal Muslims in the region. To reach them, Bangla need, needed to be modified so that it could bear the weight of Islamic instruction. But more importantly, I think, as a retainer and purveyor of a distinct Islamic culture in a Hodgsonian sense, a form of resistance to the burgeoning Hindu Bhadralok definition of colonial Bengali society. They sought to infuse directly the local culture with Islamic elements, imbuing it with the Persian and Hindustani literary heritage 
by introducing key conceptual vocabulary that would differentiate their Bangla from that of the Hindu-oriented literati who dominated the intellectual world of print. This ran counter to the 15th to 17th century seeking of equivalence, which I've elsewhere documented, when Sufis first began to compose texts in Bangla using a completely indigenous vocabulary. And of course, there were others that felt a pure and chaste Bengali, a Badralok style, would do just fine for both education and the creation of a true Muslim literature. And so wrote on Muslim topics, eschewing Muslimani Bangla and Dobashi altogether in favor of the higher register of Shad Hubasha. <clears throat> Dobashi, in a toned-down form, finally coupled with Shad Hubasha as the medium of instruction in the reform of the madrasas starting in the late 19th century. And so it continues today, as I witnessed just two weeks ago at a conference in Alia University, formerly Al-Alia Madrasa in Calcutta. <clears throat> Before this compromise, with the advent of easily available and inexpensive print, two equally impressive parallel trajectories of printing emerged in the popular press of Calcutta in the mid-1800s, Bhaktola and Punti literatures, the former Hindu and secular in content and orientation, the latter Muslim, using exclusively Dobashi or Mushalmani Bangla as its medium. Until very recently, the Punti literature has been notable by its absence from analyses of the discourse of religion and politics of the 19th century, an absence which was institutionalized in the various apparatuses of the state, so it's no surprise, including the collection of vernacular literatures for the British Museum and India office libraries. Even after the census of 1871, when it became clear that the Muslim population was the majority in Bengal, in the eyes of the colonial government, the intellectual center was Calcutta, dominated by its Hindu Bhadralok elites. As a result, the Punti literatures were considered inferior and of little import, and so were not systematically collected. No one knows just how large the Punti literature really was, but we do get hints and growing realization within the administration, for under the rubric of Mushalmani Bangla in 1886 and 87, just six years after the publication of the Iblis Nama I am analyzing today, a government report listed 979 new titles and 172 translations. And this rate of publication seems to have been sustained for nearly half a century. And even if you allow for duplication of titles, and many of these titles would run through 20 or 30 editions, uh, it's still an enormous literature. Unfortunately, only a small fragment uh, managed to enter the collections of major libraries, both here in the UK and in India. And in fact, as far as I can tell, the entire collection seems to be about the size of one year's output, but does not seem to reflect the full range of subjects. Rather, value was placed on those that mirrored Hindu and secular topics. And we know what these subjects are because if you read the fly leaves of those that are published, you can see title after title after title uh, indicating all kinds of very interesting things that did not get collected. But what texts there are are also difficult to locate for the catalogers often turn the Bangla names and sometimes the titles into Persian and Arabic, even though that's not what was on the title page and that's certainly not what the content of the book was. 
So again, we see how even in the institutions, Bangla was not considered a proper Muslim language. It had to be Persianized or Arabicized. Now, to give you an idea uh, of the size of this, uh, I, don't, I recently donated 51 texts from my personal collection to the Center for Research Libraries uh, at the University of By the way, is there anybody from Chicago here? Good. Uh, <laughs> and, and myself, yes, and Faisal. Uh, and with that donation, uh, I increased the number of titles in the Chicago collection by nearly 5,000%. <laughs> but the cataloger did not know how to classify them. So they went into the catalog as, are you ready for this, brittle Bengali books. <laughs> and recently, in collaboration with Jodhpur University, the British Library actually is trying to take steps to, to uh, address this. They've added several thousand digital titles of these 18th and early 19th century imprints, of which approximately 4%, only 4%, are in Mushalmani Bangla. And I thank uh, Debojoti Dash for that information, who is working on the project. So we're gradually trying to fill in a huge missing section of early print literature in Bangla. And I have not yet, I should add, finished my survey of the libraries here in Oxford. Now the genre of Nasihat Nama emerged as perhaps the most popular form of, of this literature. Small tracts that were designed to educate the generally illiterate Muslim farmer and others low in the social ranks. Many of the messages come in narrative form that folded contemporary political issues into the plot, such as the story of the grandsons of the prophet, Hassan and Hussein, who were kidnapped by British merchants and ultimately rescued by their father, Ali, or other fictions such as the conversation between the skull of the deceased Sultan Zamzama and Hazrat Isa, that is Jesus, and of course retellings of popular romances such as Yusuf Zuleika. There was a regular litany of dire warnings about the generally sad state of Muslims in Bengal, many including extensive graphic descriptions of the threat and anticipated punishment for those who were not prepared for the final reckoning at the end of time. There are dozens of tracts that decry the impoverished practices of the Muslim community of Greater Bengal and their bleak future if they do not change their habits. There is an entire subgenre dedicated to the misconduct of women and the need for correctives and proper discipline and training, including hot issues such as covering and sequestering. Rewards and punishments were also popular themes that stretched the imagination, and failures in the area of areas of propriety were even fingered as the instigator of earthquakes, cyclones, famines, and other natural disasters. Now, as previously noted, our author Gardibula seems to have been responsible for crystallizing the Mushalmani Bangla or Dobashi register. He composed six texts that have come to define the various genres that were operational in this linguistic form. And his texts were among the first to be published in the Punti literature of the 19th century. His texts include the Iblis Nama, which is a moralistic Nasihat Nama, the Hussein Mangal, which is a Karbala narrative, a Janganama, the Amir Hamza, a male heroic romance, uh, the Shonaban Punti, or the legendary battle uh, between Ali's son, Muhammad bin al Hanafiya, uh, and Shonaban, a Bengali queen, and Shonaban wins this, by the way, a female heroic romance, 
Yusuf Zuleika, the well-known Jami uh, version, romance as a Sufi allegory, and the Shatopir Punti of Madan Kamadev uh, Pala, uh, which is the tale of a fictional peer. The only significant addition to popular topics are the stories of the life of Muhammad, the Sira, and his family, which arguably operated in another literary realm. And I refer you to Amit Day's work, a historian at Calcutta University. Several scholars have talked extensively about the text, but only in the most general terms, listing titles, or just talking about them as general um, instruction for the masses. But not one single author that I can find has analyzed, and certainly not translated, a single one of these tales, especially any that would fall into the category of Nasihatnama. This includes such figures as Rafiuddin Ahmed, uh, his book, The Bengal Muslims, 1871-1906, Sufiuddin's Constructing Bangladesh, and even Anis Sujiman's Muslim Manosho Bangladeshahito, which is sort of the, uh, the gold standard for the literature of this era. It is this uniform dismissal that has prompted me to comb through these texts, which provide an unexplored trove of material about the issues that mattered most to 19th century Muslims. So as we perform a basic hermeneutic exercise on the Iblis Nama, you might actually see the opportunity for an entirely new area of research. So the Iblis Nama, structure and message. Gardibullah's text is well attested. The oldest print version I uncovered is from 1856, but it's not the only text so named. The Iblis Nama of Nonagaji uh, is also very close in content, and there are others as well. The conceit of the Iblis Nama is the colloquy of Iblis and Muhammad, but the text is routinely characterized as simple homiletics or low-grade sermonizing and deemed cheap entertainment because of its attention-getting novelty. I argue that the apparent novelty of the Iblis Nama disguises a very sophisticated fictional approach to a series of delicate topics that could not be easily addressed within the strictures of the traditional Sharia monologic of history, theology, and law. And it demands the participation of its audience to construct the meaning of the text. So there are three parts to the text, each of which gives rise to a conundrum. After a one-verse invitation to recite the Bismillah, the author defends the use of Banglai as the medium of discourse, then he explores the possibility of Muhammad speaking with Iblis and whether Iblis can be counted on to speak truthfully. And during the course of the colloquy, which takes up the bulky remainder of the text, he ponders the possibility or impossibility of delivering genuine Islamic instruction through fiction. The rhetorical strategy hinges on Muhammad asking questions of Iblis. So why Bangla? Why the necessity of such instruction? In the opening section of, <clears throat> of the text, the author laments that illiterates cannot fully grasp the full glory of Allah as it is described in Persian or Arabic. So he wrote in Bangla so that they may understand the graciousness and greatness of God. To write in Bangla, however, required the permission of his teacher, his murshid, which was duly granted. The implication, of course, being Bangla was not considered a proper medium for such instruction. But permission was granted nonetheless. But in the petition, we get a snapshot of the author's perspective on the state of the Muslim community. And now this is a translation directly from the text. 
First, by chanting Bismillah, I begin in the name of God. Listen, listen, brothers, to the glory of that name. Learned scholars can translate that glory into Persian, but people being uneducated do not understand it. Listen to me, my brethren, that is why I've done this in Bangla. I write simply to be understood, because no one can understand either Persian or Arabic. How can we speak of truly glorifying God? So, some tiny portion of the greatness of Allah I now try to narrate in the form of this little book. According to the command and permission of my spiritual guide, I compose this book using Bangla speech to explain better what is not understood. And you notice he told us this about five times in ten lines. With his teacher's imprimatur, the author begins with the recitation of Surah Rahman, that is uh, Surah 55 of the Quran. But the recitation is a combination of translation interwoven with a paraphrase of the surah into Bangla and amplified in the form of a running commentary, which covers the next four pages of text, about 120 lines. The content of that surah is precisely what he laments his fellow Bangla speakers cannot understand through their language, the majesty and greatness of God and the wonder of his creation, even though he's just told them all about it in the language. But about two-thirds of the way through the section, the author takes a small detour when he contrasts the power of Allah with that of, the most, of his most vaunted and praiseworthy shines, his walis, his uh, saints and peers, condemning popular practices surrounding tombs. Now, the tenor of the text changes dramatically at this point. And again, I'm translating, giving you the translation directly. As many wise men and prophets as there are in the world, none is the equal of Allah. In this early life, no matter how hard one strives, by his own efforts he cannot become a prophet. He cannot even create a fly or a maggot. To these great men, permanent or lasting means within this world. All these so-called servants of God are fools, and these fools are blind. Even though they have eyes, they do not see. They announce their intent to pay respects, but the offerings, again, are of this world. People take vows at the tombs of the dead sealed by food offerings, but all the food proffered to the peer is carried off and consumed by flies and maggots. These dead saints are powerless, that they cannot even shoo flies and maggots off the food. So if one is suffering personal difficulties, experiencing misery, what kind of power might the peer have to remedy the problem? Any living human, by contrast, has the power to drive away flies and maggots, unlike the dead peers. So how dare the powerless dead peer accept their food offerings? Better to feed cooked rice and meat dishes to humans, a gift which relieves their hunger and helps them to overcome their problems. Human beings who pray to those deceased ones are nothing but fools. Now, in this critique of a po very popular practice, the author joins a number of other reformers who sought to alert the gullible to what they considered the fraud and deceit of peers and fakirs and other religious charlatans in their eyes, but also hints of the new orientation in reform uh, Islam towards social work and social services. But by the third page of this text, we've already uncovered how a 19th century reformer has likely interpolated a passage into the text of the century-old text of Pir Gharib, which is already present in the earliest edition of the text I've found, a worm-eaten copy printed in 1263 of Bengali era, which is 1856, 
and remains in the text in subsequent print printings under various authors' names. And before you switch that, go back one. Uh, these punti literatures are always bound on the opposite side from regular Bangla. So you, you turn the pages from what would be the back of a regular Bangla book. And, and the only way you have to do that is just bind it on the opposite uh, side to make it uh, similar to uh, an Urdu text. I think the machine is not liking my presentation. Oh, it's someone's phone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, but the, the, this remains in all the subsequent printings. So we have an interpolation uh, that's not in the original uh, manuscript, uh, but ends up being uh, in the printed versions. The statement is clearly designed to undercut the position of the peer, and uh, as Ipsita Halder, who's just finishing up her dissertation at Jadapur University on the controversies around the Bangla Karbala narratives of the 19th century, has recently argued, this was a direct effect of Punti print culture. Print appropriated much of the authority of the peer. The interpolation shifts the tenor of the text into a hortatory mode, but as we shall see, this is completely inconsistent with the rest of the text. So fittingly, the description of God's fabulous creation ends with the fact that Iblis is always present on his throne, leading astray those who are weak of heart and mind. It is his actions that the author has chosen to recite, but does so with a certain trepidation. Then he describes the arrival of Iblis, and again I translate. The single eye of Iblis is blood red, his face black as pitch, his countenance hideously ugly. His head dramatically distends upward. He has no hair on his body, just blood as the skin's surface. But with Muhammad unruffled, the conversation began. So, the second section, can Iblis speak to Muhammad and tell the truth? <clears throat> the language issue appears to have been resolved by virtue of the fact that the author simply plunged in but the problem is actually displaced onto another plane. Was it even possible for such a conversation between Iblis and Muhammad to take place? And if so, what was the nature of that speech? The author recognizes that a colloquy between Muhammad and Iblis presents a seemingly intractable problem. And over the last several centuries, at least a few fatwas have been issued decreeing such a conversation impossible. Muhammad suffers no liars, and Iblis is inveterate in this regard. He can never be trusted to speak the truth. The issue is resolved when Iblis, who functions as God's loyal opponent, takes an oath in the name of God and before God to tell the truth. This loyalty, in fact, seems to be behind the premise of the text. For in order to understand what is good and proper in the eyes of Allah, one must have the contrast provided by Iblis. So Iblis approaches Muhammad and he says, <clears throat> I am a vile creature in this world. I cannot lie in front of my Lord, your friend of Allah, and I a sinner. I've come to you at the command of Allah, the stainless one the creator has sent me to you. Whatever you may ask, I'm ready to answer. I myself am all falsehood and so is my reign. You can never expect me to speak the truth. Never. But standing in the presence of my Lord, I'm not going to lie. I'm if I'm found to be a liar, may I be burnt to ashes. Uh, we're all familiar with this conundrum. You know, everything he says is a lie. So, <clears throat> on hearing what Iblis said, the prophet commanded Iblis to take his seat. 
The prophet asked Iblis, In this world, do you ever wish well for anyone? Who are your friends in this world? Who all obey your orders? Now, I think it's not insignificant that the author at the beginning of this passage indicates that he too undertakes to tell the truth about the reality of Iblis, but only in the presence of the prophet who will guarantee proper delivery just as Iblis promised to tell the truth in the prophet's presence. And while it is never stated explicitly, the concern over telling uh, this tale in Bangla, coupled with the concern over telling the tale at all, suggests that perhaps this Bangla language is, in fact, the very proper medium for such untoward subjects. This detailed celebration of Iblis's work, which should not sully the Persian or the Arabic. But the unstated question looms, can Muhammad be made to speak in Bangla? The author never answers, but finally just plunges into the conversation. The despicable people performing odious acts constitutes the remainder of the text. The litany of the types of followers of Iblis gathers and the trail of tears they leave in their wake occupies the rest of the text in a predictable chronicle. The first question is, Muhammad asked, who are your friends in this world who all obey your orders? And Iblis replied, those who are addicted to alcohol, all those are my friends on earth. All my friends on earth party and drink intoxicants. They lie here and there on the roads and gots and look so disheveled it's as if they were dead. All of your followers eat lawful, that is, halal foods. Each and every one of those are my enemies in the world. It is stated in the scriptures that when one takes country liquor and chants bismillah as it is poured in the mouth, right then and there, that pathetic human is discarded as an infidel, a kafir. That makes me happy, so I join their gatherings. The more they drink, the better I feel. Afterwards, they loot, fight, and fornicate. Women, of course, are often singled out as the root of so much of this mischief, but so too the men who abuse them. Iblis claims among his followers, and I, again I translate, those who do not get along with their own wives. They shower abuse and beat their wives. A son born of a woman who is not the man's wife is a bastard. That kind of ill-conceived son aggravates mischief and disgraces them. Those men and women are great friends of mine. I never lose them. They are like the apple of my eye. That is the expression, by the way, the apple of his eye. The issues regarding the women are addressed approximately every third or fourth page throughout the text. The interaction, or more accurately, the intercourse with women, is recounted in so many permutations that those passages seem to function as a mild form of pornographic titillation, much as did Bunkim's early historical romances such as Durgesh Nandini or Kapal Kundala, and I, I suspect there are some Bengalis who are suddenly getting dyspeptic to hear me call Bunkim's early novels soft porn, <clears throat> but read them. <laughs> the text introduces a high level of redundancy, which not only tells us of the attitude, but likely signals to us how the text is to be consumed, not in a single sitting or telling, but in small snippets, so that each section reiterates in some form what has gone on before, and the message cannot be truncated. The only positive statements in the text are descriptions of what good women do in contrast to what bad women do. People in the markets and even in mosques and other gathering places, especially unclean places like latrines, are fair game for Iblis 
the former because of their greed and lending practices, the latter for their indulgent excesses and bad lending habits, and of course, carelessness and hygiene. These are traditional haunts of Iblis where people are vulnerable. And harking back to our earlier statements, so too one finds Iblis haunting tombs. But the overwhelming number of individuals who fall into the ranks of Iblis's followers are people who violate their ritual obligations. Those who forget to wash after urinating and then go straight to prayer. Those who urinate in the direction of Mecca. Those who improperly perform namaz. Those who build graven images with their own hands and who are, as a result, polytheists. Those who keep a dog in the house. Dogs traditionally are associated with jinns, but later Iblis says in this text he created the dog with spittle when he was disgusted with the request to bow down to Adam, and for that reason it is impure. And even the paw print of a dog is sufficient to keep the angel Jabril away. And all our liars and slackers who swear on the Tulsi or basil leaf, which has been nourished by the Ganga with its decomposing corpuses, corpses and urine and feces, an apparent jab at the Vaishnava community. And among his followers also are people who ban the entrance of seven nations into the... Mo no, wait a minute. That was, that was in the 2017 edition of this text. <clears throat> Sorry. In the last third of the text, the tribulations of hell and the afterlife are graphically portrayed, including another extended diatribe against false peers and their gullible followers. Now, I want to look at the rhetorical strategies of the Iblis Nama. The text might easily be faulted, and in fact it is faulted, for being highly repetitive through redundant paraphrases, echoing and parroting of earlier passages. No doubt those apparent literary deficiencies, as they're often described, contributing to its general appraisal as unworthy of attention. There is no neat narrative thread. But we should consider the rhetorical effect of its delivery, not composed as a curographic text designed for close study, and almost certainly intended to be read aloud to an illiterate audience, every small section that might be used as a springboard for a sermon or other homiletic session would include a reprise of the message of the text as a whole. Not quite fractal-like, but you get the idea. One can open the book almost anywhere after the first four pages and find much the same message repeated in three to five page blocks. As a practical document, it's easy to see how effective this might be, no matter where you start, you get the whole in the next few pages. From the perspective of doctrinal content, the text produces a negative image of a hadith. Indeed, Iblis singles out scholars of the hadith literatures as wonderfully bad exegetes, misleading the community because they indulge their senses, and they smoke. Smoking here seems to refer to hash or opium, which destroys their sensibilities. Uh, the entire text is a parody of Hadith literature, and therein, I think, lies much of its rhetorical power. The narrative does not so much prescribe proper action appropriate to followers of God, rather it describes what people do as followers of Iblis, the inverse of the followers of God. Nowhere does Muhammad admonish Iblis or the reader. 
nor are any of the descriptions of Iblis's followers activities directly proscribed. He never says, don't do this. Ironically, because Iblis's example of how to act is in every way untrustworthy, and we also know that Iblis always lies, even when he's sworn not to lie, the description itself will of necessity be unstable and sketchy, which is to say that in much the same way that the author finessed the issue of the use of Bangla, he cleverly absolves himself of a certain responsibility for reporting the putative actions of Iblis's followers, reported here as hearsay, since the author, as a good Muslim, cannot truly know from direct experience. If these acts are true, they are indeed heinous. And that responsibility for determining what should be believed and what should be followed falls squarely on the shoulders of the audience. Utilizing techniques that today we instantly recognize as an overt or self-conscious reader response construction, the author engages the audience to think for itself, to draw right conclusions without exhortation. It is the mirror image of a sermon. The text inverts the expected hortatory mode of moral injunction familiar to the sermon, which stipulates in a declarative mood what a good practicing Muslim should do, and then harangues the auditor to emulate those actions by threatening damnation if Iblis is allowed to entice one away from the well-trodden path, the Sharia. Here, the author more gently invites the listener to engage his or her own critical faculties, to listen to the descriptions and consider their consequences in order to infer what constitutes right action and make them a conscious, or perhaps more accurately, a conscientious choice. In a book titled The Poetics of Iblis, uh, Whitney Bodman uh, distinguishes the context in which Iblis and Shaitan are rhetorically deployed. In stories from both Quranic and extra-Quranic literatures regarding those that feature Shaitan, uh, <clears throat> those that feature Shaitan articulate more direct and explicit injunctions to proper action and belief. Iblis's presence signals a very different mode of discourse. And when I first read Gharib's Iblis Nama, it seemed that the terms Iblis and Shaitan were used seemingly interchangeably. Uh, and I might also add that in the Bengali uh, parlance, there are multiple shaitans, but only one iblis. But a closer reading suggests Bodman's observations actually do seem to hold, and that suggests something about the scholastic accomplishment of the author. And Bodman writes, and I quote him here, the shaitani iblis is associated with paranetic. Paranetic is uh, giving advice, instruction, or counsel. Um, paranetic address. With the reading space, the range of interpretation afforded the reader narrowed. The Iblisi character, with its tragic dimension, amplifies the reading space, affording the reader a wider range of interpretation. The reading space is less determined, we might say open to interpretation, which invites and even requires more involvement in the formation of meaning on the part of the reader. In short, the author shifts the burden onto the reader to discern the truth in a manner consistent with the way Iblis is understood in a wider Quranic exegesis, hardly the work of an unsophisticated rustic author. While the text cannot be understood literally, 
That would imply that Ghorib was personally privy to the conversation of Muhammad and Iblis. It must then be approached as a kind of fiction. Following Pierre Machery's A Theory of Literary Production, a fiction is a reflexive, is reflexive and self-referential, referring only to its own created world. But because it presents a simulacrum of the world in which we live, it is accessible, depending on a pretext. In this case, the Islamic traditions of morality and theology, the Sharia. Fictions, I argue, elsewhere open a space where authors can explore ideas with a kind of impunity, perhaps even test novel notions of propriety and even simulacra of theology. Were it prescriptive in a hortatory mode, the text would be theological or at least doctrinal, a form of religious propaganda and not fiction at all. But it is a fanciful chimera. This exercise takes place in the realm of the imaginaire that both limits and enables new ideas, new cultural or religious perspectives, new ways of being in the world. Returning to Mashari, the text cannot legislate directly. Only by parodying doctrine or ideology, because it can only mimic theoretical discourse, but it is not completely autotelic because the fiction, which is composed of what Iblis considers the preferred behavior of his followers, projects the negative image of what Muhammad's community of true followers of Allah would do, the pretext without which the exercise makes little sense. While these subtle distinctions belong to our contemporary hermeneutic world, our way of understanding what Gharib did in his Iblis Nama, perhaps not even fully understood by Gharib himself, the fact of the text's circulation and repeated printing suggest that the experiment was effective, even if its strategy was never fully articulated by his reading public. So, in conclusion, and I have several, the narrative of the text, a fictional conversation between Muhammad and Iblis, leaves the Iblis Nama hanging in the balance between literary and ideological discourse. So the series of conundrums that move the narrative by displacing the question never have to be answered, for any direct answer would stop the narrative process. The text uses parody to mime, and in that mimesis, it mocks Hadith literatures. It is an intertextual trope that is intramural, that is, depending on the prior text, qua text, to convey its basic message. You can't understand the text without its assumption of the prior text. The Iblis Nama's effectiveness hinges on some prior knowledge of the Sharia, at least. But following Barbara Hutchin, I want to distinguish parody as a rhetorical trope, a tool, from satire as a genre, which uses parody to affect its desired social engineering. Satire then functions with an extramural orientation, affecting change in real life, and there's a huge distinction. So the parody looks at prior text. Satire uses parody to affect social engineering. And if we had any doubts, the structure of the text itself confirms its fictional and parodic nature, for the frame narrative is parallel in structure to, that is, it mimes the miraj of Muhammad. When he rides Burak up to the seven heavens and negotiates with God, about what obligations should be expected of good Muslims. 
Iblis is summoned from the lower depths, identified as hell, which mirrors or negatively creates, recreates the seven levels of heaven. It is a dark, fiery, and altogether nasty place for Iblis and his followers, filled with lizards and scorpions and venomous serpents. The structural parallel is not accidental, for many Islamic traditions place Iblis's throne not in some kind of hell, but actually in the middle of the oceans. So the author has chosen to place him down in hell as the mirror of the Miraj. Where Muhammad went up to heaven to visit with and question God, who was found sitting on his throne, Iblis was summoned from his throne, <clears throat> traditionally located in the middle of the ocean, as I said, uh, to converse with Muhammad. The colloquy must have taken place in heaven since Iblis takes his oath of truth before Allah, even though the author leaves his audience with the conundrum that nothing Iblis ever says can be trusted to be true. But the content is a total mocking inversion of the miraj. The Iblis Nama proposes a negative or obverse set of actions from that of the good human. And the subject is largely Muslims, who are Muslims in name only, though a few polytheists are fingered, that is, those who are not properly practicing submission in the way of the good, those who fail miserably in their execution of basic ethical injunction. Given the sophistication of the conceit, the structure of the text as a parody of the narrative trajectory of the Miraj and its inversion of the content of Ahadith, the elusive location of its fiction, and the refusal of the author to sermonize makes this little text, which is routinely ignored and even denigrated, anything but naive or simple-minded. Thanks.